0: This is the first week of Advent, and we lit the candle of hope today, and that's what we're going to be talking about is hope. Uh, The dictionary definition of hope, to cherish a desire with anticipation, to desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. So by its very definition, hope points to something we do not have or cannot guarantee we will have, but we expect it to happen all the same. So, what what are some things you're hopeful for this thing or Thanksgiving, Christmas season? <laughs> Living in the past. So g- give me something. What, what's something you're hoping for? Peace. Did someone else say aloud? I can't hear today. Time with family. Warm weather. What about gifts? Gifts. What, what, what's something you're hoping for is a gift for Christmas? Serenity. Browns go to the playoffs. To the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm hoping for this Christmas, like every Christmas, socks. Every year I hope for socks, and I get them almost every year. I hate buying socks, but obviously, I mean, I wear socks, so if I get them for Christmas, I generally don't need to buy any through the year. Works out great. A big question I had when preparing the message today uh, is how is hope different from faith? And I was thinking about this and I was reading through the Bible uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen so what i hope i am able to communicate today is the idea that hope is really the seed of faith or the foundation of our faith depending on which metaphor you prefer there cannot be faith without hope and this is specifically the hope that comes through the life and death of jesus christ Please open your Bibles with me. We're going to Romans chapter 8. It's page 944 if you're using the church Bibles. Now in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is writing this as a letter to the church in Rome where he hasn't been yet. This letter is supposed to be an introduction before he comes to visit them. And in this chapter 8 specifically, Paul makes four distinctions, four contrasts between life with Christ and life without Christ. And each one of uh, each one of these contrasts will give us clues to understand the hope we have as followers of Christ. So we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in the first four verses, we have the important contrast. We have death and sin versus life in Christ. We are separated from God because of our sin. We can identify sin because God gave us the law. And this is what Paul means by the law of sin and death. That on our own we fall short of the law and the consequence of that is eternal separation from God. But Jesus came to fulfill the law as a sin offering, the sin offering that accounts for all the sins of humanity. And now we have life in the spirit because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's important to know as we go along today how many times the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is mentioned in this chapter. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is an integral part of our faith. In these first four verses, Paul has laid the foundation that without Christ, we have only death because of sin. Starting in verse verse 5, we have a diagnostic, if you will, to test if we have crossed from death to life. Is my, m- am I treating God with hostility? Is my mind hostile toward God? Am I submitting to his will? Am I setting my mind on what the Spirit desires? These are questions we can ask ourselves. To cross from death to life requires surrender to God, trusting in his grace and his mercy. And the crossing from death to life is the first step of our faith journey. If there was no hope for life with Christ, there'd be no need to cross from death to life. Verse 12 through 17. Hope of freedom. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. So here's the second contrast. Slavery to our sinful nature, freedom to live as heirs of God. It's almost as if Paul knew there would be people who accuse Christianity of being a religion of stifling rules designed to squash individuality. But the Bible Tells us that we have been set free in Christ. We haven't traded one form of slavery for another. We are set free from the sinful nature that leads to death. I have a question for you today. How many of you have ever been locked in the trunk of a car? Just one? Couple? A couple? Okay. Well, something about that back row. <laughs> So, my name is Tommy French. I've been locked in the trunk of a car, and this is my story. <laughs> when I was a young teenager, there's a group of us teens hang out in the parking lot after church one Sunday. I don't really remember all the, like, the discussion or whatever that led up to it. This was 15 years ago. But one of the older teens, who didn't really like me, mind you, suggested I let them close me in the into the trunk of their car. Now, I'm not the sharpest tack in the box. so I didn't really see where this was going. So I I quite willingly get in the trunk of the car, and they close it. And for about 10 seconds, I was content to just sit there on the trunk of the car. But then I decided I wanted to get out of the trunk. So I knocked on the roof of the car. Okay, you let me out now. Guys? hello now I could hear them like laughing and talking out there so no they hadn't like just walked away they were just choosing to ignore me so I panicked for maybe two seconds until I realized that cars are equipped with an emergency release to allow people who get locked into the trunks of cars to get out of the trunk if you believe the critics Choosing to follow Jesus Christ is like letting someone lock you in the trunk of a car. And now once in a while, someone finds the emergency release and manages to escape their captivity. And all the world marvels at their bravery, that they broke away from the stifling religion. But if we believe what the Bible tells us, Christ's death and resurrection sets us free from the locked trunk of our sinful nature. We don't have an emergency release we can use to escape our sin nature on our own. Christ's death and resurrection opened the door for us. To serve and worship a loving God is not slavery, it is freedom. So we have at least an academic understanding of what it means to be enslaved. Let's look at the contrast, freedom as heirs of Christ. Verse 15 says we received the spirit of adoption. Verse 16 and 17 say we are children of God, co-heirs with Christ. Adoption was common in the Greek and Roman cultures when Paul was writing this letter. And adopted sons had all of the privileges of natural sons, including inheritance rights. So Paul is drawing the parallel between the institution of adoption, which his audience was very familiar with, and our salvation through faith in Christ. God has adopted each of us as his child, his sons and his daughters. And each of us has an equal share of the inheritance God has promised us. God did more than just free us from slavery to sin. He has elevated us to the highest level co-heirs with Jesus Christ. In Psalm 84.10, the psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And the kingdom of God, we're not his doorkeepers. We're not standing outside while the party goes on inside, just happy to not be locked up somewhere. We get to sit at the table with our father and our brothers and sisters. That's how much God loves us. We are children of God and we do live in freedom, but we need to know that these are not passive words. There's a definite active component to being free in Christ. (laughs) In verse 13, backing up a little, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Once the first step towards life in the Spirit has been made, we have an obligation to put, the de- put to death the misdeeds of the body. In our freedom, we are not just spectators. We need to take hold of the inheritance of righteousness God has for us. And part of that is putting to death the sins that we've been freed from. This is a process called sanctification, where through the course of our entire lives, we are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. This is the life God has in mind for each of us, freedom from sin and a continual process of transformation. And what is the alternative to the life God has for us? If we don't put to death the sin in our lives, we open ourselves up to be enslaved by it once more. Back to my story about being locked in the trunk of a car. So I pulled the emergency release and I got out of the trunk, and I wish that were the end of the story. So for all of like two seconds, the kids thought I was Houdini because I would managed to escape from the trunk of a locked car. Uh, but I explained, no, it was like this emergency release here. Duh. Mm. Um, so they digested this information, and then they tried to convince me to get back into the trunk of a car. So what do you think I did? Like I said, I'm not the sharpest tack in the box. I climbed back into the trunk of the car. They closed it, and then someone sat on the door of the trunk and they wouldn't let me out fortunately i kept it together enough that i noticed that on the inside wall of the trunk there was a way to release the back seat so that it folded forward and i got out that way and i wish that were the end of the story you see my wife up here? She's like <laughs> For a third time, I let them convince me to climb into that trunk knowing full well I had exhausted my escape options. There was no uh, uh, latch on the floor that was gonna drop out the bottom of the trunk and let me out that way. I got in, they closed the trunk, someone sat on the trunk and a couple people sat in the back seat so I couldn't fold down the back seat. They let me go eventually, it was probably pretty boring for them. They probably thought they'd get in trouble. Who, having been set free from slavery, would willingly take up chains again? We know the Israelites felt this way at one point. In the book of Numbers, they finally arrive, they're across the river from the promised land. God led them out of Egypt, he parted the Red Sea, they crossed over. He led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of the Lord was with them in the tabernacle. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the law, Mount Sinai. He provided for them in the wilderness all the food they needed to eat. Their clothes didn't wear out. They get to the border of the promised land and they send 12 spies in to recon the area. 12 spies come back and two of them say, this land is awesome. It's exactly what God has promised. Let's go take it. And the other 10 guys are like, The people of this land are giants, and they have fortified cities, and they're too strong for us. If we try to take the land, they will kill us all. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're right there. They're on the border. They can see it. They can practically taste the promised land that God promised them. And they're talking about going back to Egypt to voluntarily take on chains again. Why? Let's think about what they were looking at. God wanted them to take the promised land from the people who were occupying it. For all intents and purposes, God was asking them to go to war to take their inheritance. They were afraid. Of what exactly, it's not specific, I mean death, battle, losing loved ones, we can speculate, but in their minds, the suffering that could come from taking hold of their inheritance was worse than the suffering they had endured as slaves in Egypt. If I am honest, I will say that I am often tempted to fear the suffering that could come as a follower of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the world will hate us. In parts of the world, our brothers and sisters are suffering slavery, rape, and death because of their faith, the same faith we share. I fear what might happen if God withdraws his hand of blessing from this country. And the devil seizes on that fear, and he tries to convince me to get back into the trunk of the car. But God sets us free from our fear. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The Bible says we are set free in Christ. From death and sin and fear that doesn't change but we need to watch that we aren't giving ourselves up to slavery of sin or the spirit of fear if we didn't have the hope of freedom in Christ there'd be no need to escape our slavery to sin but we do have that hope let's go down to verse 18 The NIV translation of the Bible says creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. Corruption being an older kind of archaic alternative to the word decay. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the third contrast. Present sufferings, future glory. Because of sin, all of creation is subject to suffering and decay. I need a a, a science buff to help me out here. Does anyone know what the second law of thermodynamics is? Okay. I didn't read the definition, the official definition is like a whole paragraph, but in layman's terms, second law of thermodynamics states that everything tends to a state of disorder. How many of you know your your house tends toward a state of disorder? Basically, our universe is slowly decaying and falling apart. This is considered a scientific law, like the law of gravity, It is a concept that has been proven to be true so consistently and in so many situations and experiments that it cannot be denied under any circumstances. That is the impact of sin on God's creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, the very laws of the universe were broken and creation began to suffer and decay and die. Prior to sin, there was no And as followers of Christ, we are not exempt from suffering in this world. It doesn't seem like a very good argument for faith in Christ, does it? You mean, you mean if I choose to follow God, I will still have to suffer in this life? Yes. The Bible tells us, though, that the suffering of this life is only temporary. That it is the blink of an eye compared to eternity. With Christ. And because of the hope we have of a life after this one, our response to suffering can be very different from the world. Earlier in the letter to the Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 6, Paul says, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, We can rejoice in our sufferings because God uses them to grow us and shape us and even minister to the lives of others. (laughs) Because of the hope we have in Christ, we know that the sufferings of the world are temporary. Paul emphasized this again in verse 28 that we just read. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who have been called according to his purposes. And when it, when, Paul says God works all things for the good. It's not like God is some celestial puppet master up here, like handling all the strings and doing everything. God is with us in the midst of it. In Isaiah 43, verse 1 through the first part of verse 3, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God walks us through the fire and sees us through deep waters. We will suffer in this world until Christ returns. There's no mystery there. But through all the suffering we experience, God never leaves us. Our suffering is nothing compared to the hope of Christ's return when our adoption as sons and daughters will be finalized, and we will be given new bodies, and all of creation will be freed from the state of decay. Christ's return is going to correct the course of all creation. In verse 26 and 27, Paul reiterates that the Spirit does what we cannot. How weak are we without God? We can't even pray for ourselves. We don't know how. And yet the Spirit is fervently praying for us. The word intercede is fervently praying on our behalf. Let's go to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the fourth contrast. Opposition to our faith, God's love. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, Peter tells us, To be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. For the first time in this chapter, Paul's language starts to allude to our enemy, the devil. But even as he acknowledges the devil, Paul's telling us we do not have to fear him. He cannot condemn us because we've been justified in Christ. God is going to do everything necessary to finish the work Jesus began on the cross. Nothing can stop him. In verse 34, we read that Christ himself intercedes on our behalf. The Holy Spirit and Christ Jesus are fervently praying for us without ceasing. What struggles are you suffering with today? Sickness, loss, loneliness, temptations? Through all these and so much more, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, we are more than conquerors. Because of Christ's love, We are more than conquerors. And not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. We have nothing to fear. We can stand up to our enemy because we have hope that the love of Christ will finish the work he started and that the war will end when Christ returns. The war has already been won. The end is known. And it ends when Christ returns. The world thinks that we have a blind faith, that we cling to our beliefs like a crutch. The world doesn't understand what we hope for because they don't see what we see. They have closed their eyes and covered their ears. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says, for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The lost sit in the dark corners of their sin, rocking back and forth with their eyes closed, their hands over their ears, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs to try and shut out the darkness. Each of us was born into a dark world, And until we see the light of hope in Christ Jesus, all we ever know is darkness. Until we see the light of hope in Christ, each of us is locked away in a little dark box with no way out. On our own, we can't make light. We can't be light. The light has to come and open the dark box. And then we have to choose to leave the box behind and let the light live in us. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he was charging us to share the light with the lost in this dark and dying world. And even though we have the light, we need to be careful because we're not immune to the suffering and temptation of this world. In fact, we need to be extra vigilant because the devil is prowling around trying to devour us. In 1994, in a tiny African nation called Rwanda, 800,000 people who were of a tribe called the Tutsi were murdered by their friends and neighbors who were of the tribe called the Hutu. Perhaps you've heard of this, we call it the Rwandan genocide. I learned about this growing up, but in world history, a lot of these things, they just scratch the surface. The history of the Tutsi and the Hutu tribes is very long and complex, like all relationships between two groups of people. But there are some important facts that need to be shared. First, the seeds of the conflict between the tribes had been planted and nurtured over 100 years before the genocide. And in the five or so decades leading up to the genocide, violence was openly talked about. It was talked about on the radio. It was joked about. Two guys would be sitting together talking, and one of them make a joke about the other one killing him one day. Ha ha, funny. Perhaps that doesn't shock anybody. But what should shock us is that most of the people in Rwanda at that time were Christians. And when I say most, I mean easily 90-plus percent of the nation were either Catholic or Anglican or some pro- Protestant denomination. The devil went prowling around Rwanda, and he found people to devour. There are many, many accounts of people of faith working to protect their neighbors. Pastors, people would hide Tutsis who were being hunted by the Hutus in their homes and the churches. Often they were caught and this would result in their own deaths. There are also accounts of Hutu people going to church on a Sunday listening to their pastor or priest and then that pastor or priest would lead his congregation out into the killing fields to hunt people down. How did God's church let something like this happen? They had the gospel. They had the good news. They had the same hope that we have. Somehow the devil convinced a nation of 7 million people that their lives would be better, that they would suffer less if 1 million of those people were no longer living. if they killed their friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters in Christ. And all those people defied our God's command to love one another and they climbed back into that little black box and shut out the light. We can't ignore the reality of the world we live in or the dangers that wait for those of us who aren't prepared we are not immune to temptation. And I realize that seems so far away from where we are today. Our country is divided as it is. It seems so far away from where we're at today. But the seeds were planted 100 years previously. What could our nation look like in 100 years? The answer to that question begins today. It begins now with us and what we choose to do with the hope that we have. We live in a country of great personal freedom and security. We don't need to worry about the things much of the world does. I don't need to worry about where to get a glass of clean drinking water. Yet even in our abundance and all the blessings we have, the devil still whispers to us, to get back in that box and shut away the light of Christ. There are believers who have been getting in and out of that box their whole lives. They've got one hand on God and one hand on the box, and they wonder why they're not experiencing the freedom that was promised. There are believers who walk around in the light, enjoying their freedom, but they're totally numb to the screams of the people who are locked in their little black boxes. There are also believers who are tirelessly working to advance the kingdom of God and trying to bring hope to those who do not have it. I love talking about the Bible with other people. I will sit with you for hours and wax philosophical on all kinds of theological topics. I will leave feeling all warm and fuzzy inside as if I actually accomplished something. But if I never take what I'm being taught and put it into action, I am having zero impact on this world for God. If I never share the hope that I have as God commanded, I'm having zero impact on this world for God. When we give our lives to God, we're not put on standby until God takes us to heaven. There's work for us to do. It's often difficult, heartbreaking, and it can be very unrewarding labor. But we need to bring the light we have to this world. We need to tell the lost that there is hope. Then we need to trust that God will bring them to faith. When I was in college, I had a friend, we were talking one time, and he said, I just can't follow a God who would tell me what to do. And to my shame, I didn't have an answer for him. The Bible tells us we need to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And that day, I failed. And I hope that today is a small step towards redressing that failure. That we do have hope. And I pray the same for all of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are entering a season of great joy lots of love and family. There are so many people who feel lost this season, Lord. They don't have the hope we have. Lord, I ask for your spirit of boldness to come upon this church, each of us, and that you would send us out into the world to bring the hope we have and share it with others. Ask your blessing over each and every one of my brothers and sisters here today. Ask that you would walk with them this week and through the rest of this season. And that we would always be mindful, Lord, that without you we were once lost. Now we need to share that with others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to the podcast now, and for more info, including sermon outlines, visit our website at www.kurtlandchristian.org.